person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond the pet cemetery ain't human at all. The Indians knew that. They stopped using that burial ground when the ground went sour. Don't think about doing it, Lewis. The place gets holier, but the place is evil. Welcome to Now Playing's Pet Cemetery Retrospective Series. Today is Thanksgiving Day for cats, but only if they came back from the dead. Part of the Now Playing Stephen King movie series. A graveyard for pets killed in the road, built by broken-hearted children. Hosted by Arnie. They'll come over and play with me. Stuart. I'm sure things will be fine. I'm not. And Jacob. Scared you, didn't I? Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series and keep coming back as we continue looking at all the movies based on the writings of Stephen King. You're thinking thoughts that's not thought of, Lois. And join Arnie at BooksAndNachos.com for in-depth reviews of all of Stephen King's books and short stories. Daddy's going to do something really bad! These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Thank you for introducing that colorful phrase into my daughter's vocabulary. Listener discretion is advised. First I played with Dad, then Mommy came, and I played with Mommy. Now I want to play with you. I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. I don't want to live my life again. Today we're discussing Pet Cemetery. Starring Dale Midkiff, Fred Gwynn, Denise Crosby, Rod Gwynquist, Michael Lombard, Miko Hughes. Directed by Mary Lambert. This is the now playing host who never plays fair, Ani. Stuart in LA. And this is the host that proves the soil of a podcaster's heart is stonier, Jacob. Is that a real main accent? I I don't buy Herman Munster's accent. Like, I can't believe... I went to YouTube looking for main accents. I'm like, there's no way that's how they speak. Oh, I thought you were talking about Arnie. I didn't buy that accent either. Well, no, I didn't buy that one either. It was about as convincing as Herman Munster's. <laughs> and yet both are really accurate. My mother is from Maine. And when I was young, I had to be sent to speech therapy because I couldn't say my ass. They thought I had an impediment when, in fact, I just spoke like a New Englander. So, no, that is how they speak. And Fred Gwynn sounds exactly like my uncle's. We'll have to ask our main listeners if that's accurate or not. I, <laughs> I don't know how many main listeners we have, but we do have a lot of Stephen King fans. And this is the last part of 2016's Stephen King coverage. We're going to do Pet Cemetery this week and Pet Cemetery 2 next week. And then we're done for a little bit. Pet Cemetery. It was also the last Stephen King film of the 80s. And 86, it had a high point with Stand By Me. And then we kind of had a little bit of a lull. They didn't make that many. We had, what, Return to Salem's Lot and The Running Man and the aborted attempted apt pupil that starred Ricky Schroeder. <laughs> yeah, I think some damage had been done. A lot of that night shift stuff had kind of sullied. He wasn't considered top shelf 
director material anymore. And this was supposed to be a top shelf director. My understanding was they were waiting for George Romero to pull it together. So what happened? This movie was in pre-production for years. The book was published in 83, and that was when King's books were selling before they even printed. I mean, think around this time was when Christine came out. And this was the book touted as the book so scary, it frightened even King. And the truth is, he didn't want this book published. His wife Tabitha had read it while he was writing it and told him, stop. Because it is based on the time that Stephen King's young son, Owen, ran out into the road and there was a truck coming and King tackled him on the edge of the road and saved his life. And this entire book, so what if the kid kept going? And previously on that same road, the cat had died. Oh, so something like this actually did almost happen to King. You know, we, we made fun of him with, like, with Mangler. King will turn anything into a horror story. I'm like, here's a story where we really tapped into, like, a real fear. But no, this actually almost happened to him. That's crazy. I remember from my days actually writing a Stephen King book report myself. I think it was ninth grade that I actually did that. The quote that I got from him was, when they asked him what scared him, the death of his child was his deepest fear. And this is the book I think that he associates with being his scariest because it's going to be the one to explore most deeply the death of a child. Although we kind of got that with Cujo. Yeah, but that was a fictional thing. Whereas here, he is just going down the path of what if he had been a little slower on the road and... Uh, this is the King family, older daughter, younger son, as it was in the 70s. He did not intend to publish this book. It ended up getting out because of a contract dispute, really. But then this movie went into pre-production and George Romero was working on it. The problem was King. He was offered a million dollars to hand over the rights to this, part and parcel. King said no and instead sold it for a thousand dollars with the guarantee that his screenplay was used untouched. And if you recall, he'd written screenplays for Firestarter, The Dead Zone. He was writing drafts of this, and then they'd look at it and go, uh-huh, and then have another writer rewrite it. And he wasn't liking the changes. He wrote the screenplay. This is the first King screenplay that was actually his own writing adapting his own work. Creepshow was the only other thing that had King as a writer. Okay, so things are starting to click then. Things things in this movie, why they happen, are starting to make sense. King was the one doing this screenplay. If it was in the book, he was going to make sure it could be in the film. I'm going to call this the Kubrick Clause. I've got to believe that the liberties taken with Shining are the reason why he, he <laughs> felt it so important that another book of his that was close to his heart got done right. Maybe he wouldn't care what they did with Mangler, but yeah, with Pet Cemetery being, I think, one of his favorite, or at least one that deeply touched him, you can imagine he didn't want to see another highbrow director taking his characters in a different direction. Well, because of this, studios passed on this for years. And finally, on his third attempt, the producer sold it to Paramount, and Paramount agreed to fund it with the budget, but they wanted the movie really fast. And this was done while Romero was in the last days of shooting Monkey Shines, and there was just no way Romero could do it Aww. in the time that the Paramount was requiring. You should just scrap Monkey Shines. Have you seen that movie? Oish. Long time ago. Not a good one. 
And then they decided to go to Tom Savini again, you know. Every time Romero says no, they go to Savini, Creepshow <laughs> 2. Savini said no again. I don't know why he was holding out for that Night of the Living Dead remake <laughs> the next year. But damn it, he was. Mm-hmm, sure. And so he passed on this. So they bring in Mari Lambot. <laughs> Is she from Maine? No. She's actually from Arkansas. <laughs> okay, well, that accent sounds all the same to me. <laughs> Mary Lambert, have a dad. <laughs> she actually talks with a very thick southern drawl. But she is the director known for such great films as Madonna's Like a Virgin video and Madonna's Like a Prayer video and many other Madonna. Yeah, I noticed she had a lot of music videos on her resume. Yeah, La Isla Bonita, and... She did other people, too. I, I think she did Eurythmics, Bowie, Rolling Stones, but yeah, yeah she music was... videos. <laughs> other people's music videos, yeah. That was the beginning of the wave. I do think of the late 80s and definitely the early 90s. You know, sometimes it works out. You get a David Fincher, but then also you get a lot of... Mary Lambert. Yeah, <laughs> one it wonders. Everyone got a chance. You know, if you made a splashy music video that made an impression chances are you were given a film and this was i presume why she got the gig that and she had done one movie before called siesta Woo! and i watched it <laughs> on your own or for this review yeah, kind of for this review did you want to take a siesta during it <laughs> no no it's fascinating it's a really interesting bad movie it's got a great cast you can't even believe the cast it's ellen barkin martin sheen grace jones jodie foster <laughs> Wow. Isabella Rossellini, just like almost in every scene, they're just, they blow in. It's just one of those weird 80s movies where you really don't know what the hell's going on. It was about death, though. And so they thought she had a thing with death that she'd be able to bring. She's, because of this film, become basically stereotyped as a horror director. She, the only other film of hers I've seen is Urban Legends Bloody Mary. What, was that a direct-to-video one? I think I've seen the first one. There was more. Was that the third or the second one? This is the third, and it was direct-to-video. Mm. <laughs> but she also did Halloween Town 2. Oh, Halloween Town. <laughs> is that a Disney film? <laughs> is that like Bette Midler is a witch or something? Or is, is that something else I'm thinking of? Did Madonna not want to work with her anymore? Like, why is she doing this? <laughs> it was actually a Disney Channel original movie. But... Faces of Evil, she'll do the sequel to Pet Cemetery. we're talking next week. She talks about her own horror oeuvre in much grander terms than I actually view it to be. She's like, I can't count the number of times I've had to film muddy footprints in a bed. I'm like, looking at your filmography, three? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah have much of an impression about her work i remember her music videos i mean obviously if you were a child of the 80s uh, and watched mtv heavy rotation on many of these things i don't know that even if they were great music videos but they're ones imprinted on my mind i they they bring up imagery that i can think of and i think i even see some kind of music video motifs there's a dream sequence in this movie we're talking about tonight that i felt like could definitely have been a madonna video well, I also think she may have been hired because she knew the Ramones. Ah. I really do believe that because... I was just going to say, did she direct the Ramones Pet Cemetery music video? I don't know if she directed that video, but she was actually friends with them. She'd met them and done some of their videos and then just became good friends with them. And 
Kings used the Ramones heavily in the book, and in his script, he had the trucker listening to the Ramones song, and he was adamant he wanted that Ramones song, and she's like, well, I know Joey real well, I can give him a call and guarantee you that song. And so, okay, you hired. Mm. <laughs> yeah, my, my understanding is that King is a Ramones fan, and he invited them over and said, hey, here's this book, we're doing it as a movie, make a song about it, and... Dee Dee, I believe, like looked through the book for about an hour and then wrote the song. Like, and you could tell because that song has nothing to do with this movie. I I love this Ramon song. It has nothing to do with this movie. If you actually <laughs> look at the lyrics, I mean, it even mentions Victor. Like, I'm sure Dee Dee saw Victor's name as he flipped through the book. The Victor in the song does nothing that the Victor in this movie, or I'm assuming the book does. But there is a lot of movie songs where they basically take the premise and the title and don't really retell the plot in lyrics there are also many that do retell the plot in lyrics but here i love the ramones song i actually didn't know the ramones by name until this movie came out i had heard some of their songs in like other movies like vacation and things blitzkrieg bop was everywhere but i didn't know who the ramones were until this and i think it's one of their better composed songs it was nominated for a razzie for a razzie yeah i read Ouch. that but i think that's a bit harsh i it, again it's up there in the top tier of Ramon songs for me. It's it's one that I like. I knew about the song before I knew about this movie. I've seen this movie before, but I knew the song long before I'd ever heard of the movie. I think the problem might have been it was a sellout. I mean, for the Ramones to do a Stephen King movie, you know, 10 years after Rock and Roll High School, it was awfully commercial. But it did get MTV play. I do remember the video. I do remember this movie. I actually think it was maybe the first time I actually went to a movie theater to see a Stephen King experience. And I took my mother, and I remember we both liked it. I also saw this in theaters opening weekend, my first Stephen King film in theaters as well, because my parents wouldn't take me to see The Running Man. But I found a theater that let young kids buy tickets to our NC-17, whatever you want, as long as you have 350 So I saw this alone opening weekend, but not just because it was king and not just because it was horror, although there's were enticements, but because at that point I'd become a pretty hardcore Trekkie. You walked into my room, mm. it was wallpapered with posters, and this was the movie Denise Crosby made right after her character was killed off on Star Trek. I was really upset when Tasha Yar died, yep. and... I now understand she left because she felt she wasn't being given interesting things to do. But at the time, she pulled a David Caruso, I'm leaving for all the film roles I'm being offered. <laughs> and so if she left Star Trek for this, which was my mindset in 89, I'm going to be there and see what Tashi Yar is doing other than that Playboy spread. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I missed that one. But yeah, I agree. That was part of the interest. I I was a Tasha Yar fan. I did watch Next Generation for the first two seasons. And so, yeah, I was vaguely interested in that. Herman Munster, maybe less so. <laughs> I never knew that was Herman Munster. I'd seen the Munsters, of course. Everybody has. Come on, that jawline gives it away. That, that's what tells me it's Herman. He was so much older, though. I mean, we're talking many years later. And now that I know, I can't unsee it, and especially unhear it. I even mm. now hear Herman Munster talking a little bit of a New England accent. He always did have kind <laughs> of an inflection thing going on. But no, I, I was there for Denise Crosby and Stephen King. 
Dale Midkiff, I don't know if anyone's even gone to a <laughs> store opening because Dale yeah, Midkiff. Who? Yeah. <laughs> even now, I've looked him up. I'm like, what did he go on to do? Television, an episode here, an episode there. Strangely, the other day I saw a movie with him in it. It freaked me out. Love Potion number nine, the Sandra Bullock early 90s rom-com. Yep, you watched that. <laughs> <laughs> I, and it should be said, uh, we also came to this because the book was one that I considered one of his best. I remember thinking, and it had to do with the hype. I mean, obviously, when you have the line, the scariest thing I ever wrote, you know, on the cover, uh, th that's going to color your impression. But I did want to see how they were going to pull off the things I remembered from the book. And I never read this book until just before this podcast. It was huh. just one of those that I had never gotten to. Now, I will admit, again, Stephen King Book Club, as soon as I saw this movie, we'll talk about the end stinger, but I raced to a bookstore, and I picked it up and turned to the last page to see what happened next, and the book ends exactly like the movie does, just about, and so I was like, ah, fuck this book. I saw the movie, <laughs> and I walked out. I read it now. I'll eventually get to books and nachos on it, but in the end, I like it, but it's got some pacing problems in my mind. It's a lot of meandering and ruminations on death. Yeah, undeniable. I also think that there is a subplot that has been excised by King himself about the Indian burial ground, and I think it does kind of change some things. Jacob, have you ever read it? No, I haven't read it. Like I said, I saw it one time, man, 93, 94, when I was in high school. I hadn't seen it since. Watching it, I didn't remember much about it. I could tell you a basic plot, but I couldn't get into the details. I know a cat comes back and a baby comes back. Yeah, well, that's good, because I think that there's some parts that I think would confuse people if they're not familiar with the source material. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff I found confusing watching it this time and paying attention. Yeah. All right, well, then I think that's our cue to get into it, Arnie. In Pet Cemetery, Dale Midkiff plays Lewis Creed, a doctor who recently relocated his family to Maine so he can work at the university. He's picked a new home for his family that's nearly perfect, save for the two-lane highway in front of the house where Ornco trucks speed past all day. Their across-the-street neighbor Judd, played by Fred Gwynn, tells the Creeds that many animals and children have been killed on that road. Judd even gives the family a tour of the heavily populated Pet Cemetery the children frequent, but that warning doesn't help to stop the horrible events which follow. First, while the rest of his family goes back to Chicago for Thanksgiving, Lewis finds the family cat Church had been hit on the road. But instead of burying the cat in the pet cemetery, Judd leads Lewis further on the path to a burial ground established by the Micmac Indians. There, Lewis buries the cat, and as the nursery rhyme goes, the cat came back the very next day, alive but altered, vicious, and carrying a horrible stench. But when his wife, Rachel, played by Denise Crosby, returns with Gage and their older daughter, Ellie, all seems well. Until the day of a fateful picnic when both Rachel and Lewis take their eyes off their kite-flying son just long enough for him to get in the road and be killed by a truck. The family is grief-stricken, especially Rachel, who has long harbored a phobia of death fostered by childhood events involving the death of her muscular sclerosis-suffering older sister, Zelda. So Rachel and Ellie go back to Chicago, dealing with their grief, but Lewis stays in Ludlow, where, against Judd's advice, he exhumes the body of his dead son and reburies Gage in the Micmac grounds. These events bring about the ghost of Victor Pascal, a college student who died on the first day of Lewis's job, played by Brad Greenquist. 
Pascal had tried in vain to ward Lewis away from the cemetery. Failing in that regard, he appears to Ellie in dreams and whispers in Rachel's ear until she takes an emergency flight back to Maine. The boy does return, but with a penchant for death. Seemingly working in tandem with the undead feline church, Gage first ambushes and kills Judd. Then when he's discovered by his returned mother, he kills Rachel as well. Finally, he goes after Lewis. So Lewis fills a syringe with a fatal formula and first injects and re-kills the cat and then kills his own son. But finding the body of his dead wife, Lewis returns again to the Micmac burial grounds a third time, hoping burying her faster will bring about better results. But it doesn't. A decayed and homicidal Rachel returns, and kissing Lewis, she swings a knife at his neck as credits roll. Now, of course, the movie's called Pet Cemetery. The credits are going to open at the Pet Cemetery, place where it's later going to be characterized. The dead speak. We hear kids naming their pets, speaking in eulogy about lost goldfish and what have you. It's a little misleading, though, isn't it? It's very misleading. Like, here's the thing with that Ramon song. Going back to that, I thought the one thing that was true about Pet Cemetery, the Ramon song, was they got the chorus right. I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. I don't want to live my life again. But that's not what the Pet Cemetery does. <laughs> I don't understand why this is called Pet Cemetery or why it's misspelled. Like, because that's not where the evil's going to happen. Well, I presume it's misspelled because a child, that was a child's attempt at spelling cemetery, and who knew it was spelled with a C? I still probably, thank you, autocorrect, would get that wrong if, <laughs> if I didn't have help. I thought it was some arcane spelling and, like, was looking up, and then they in the movie they even say, oh, yeah, it's spelled wrong. But, yeah, he obviously made a choice. They could have just had it that if you're buried in the pet cemetery, that's the ancient Indian burial grounds, but they it's once removed. That is really... What was put in front of it, along with a big pile of sticks, the real <laughs> burial ground is much harder to get to. And the choice to make that is a little puzzling. The only reading I could have is why you'd want to call this pet cemetery is because of Judd. We'll find out later that he buried a dog in that Indian burial ground and it came back. And when it finally died a second time, he buried it back into the pet cemetery. So I could say, oh, the pet cemetery, it's a symbol because of Judd for accepting death and letting dead things lay and, and moving on. But that's stretching. That, that's the only reason I could come up with for calling this pet cemetery. I also think that, well, we'll get into it when we talk about what's not here up on screen, but I think there's an evil that haunts this whole area and it's already taken a whole lot of lives that basically the pet cemetery represents most of the pets that are there anyway have been killed by the road and that there's this awful force with all these trucks and all of that constantly mowing down and, and making roadkill out of beloved furry family members. And also the pet cemetery is like the gateway to the evil land. You know, it's the last stop before the dead falls that they have to climb and go there. I understand what you're saying jacob because yeah the title implies if you're buried in that cemetery you come back and 
I think that's what people who don't even think about it think. You know, it's kind of like when you call a vicious dog Cujo, people will say, oh, get buried in the pet cemetery and come back. It's just the reference. And they don't say, oh, yes, go past the pet cemetery to the Micmac burial grounds (laughs) and then come back. You got to climb over a whole lot of other stuff. (laughs) Don't fall. Yeah, you have to go through a quarry. Like, I can't believe that's the only path to the Micmac burial grounds. Like, that thing is up on a big cliff. There's other ways to get there. Come on. Mm-hmm. You could have poltergeisted it. You could have said it wasn't Indian burial grounds, and then they turned it into a pet cemetery. But be that as it may, it makes us think that the first death we're going to get is an animal. And indeed, it will be. When we see the family moving into their new house, and they have a little cat in the back, I'm thinking dead meat. Yes. Did they not research this house? Like, those trucks, they're not just going by all day. They're going by all night. I would have a hard time sleeping. Yeah, the noise would be terrible. There's no wall or anything. My sister lives about two miles off of an interstate, but there's nothing in between her and that interstate. No houses, no wall. It's just the plains of Kentucky. And that wakes you up in the night when a lot of trucks go by. So I don't know how they sleep. It is said, though, when they arrive... Lewis is looking at his family and going, did I pick well? This is what happens when you send the husband out to find a house. (laughs) Yeah, you never do this. I learned that lesson when my parents were going for a new house. My dad would find one, but my mom always had to approve it. And I think that there isn't probably enough here in the movie to explain why they're even coming here. In the book, there's... You know, it's it's a big book. It's over 500 pages. So a lot is given to backstory and his job and all of that. But do you even understand that he's coming there to go work at a college as a doctor? I feel like that's given short shrift. No, no, I get that he got a job as a doctor at a university. I was trying to think, did we have a doctor assigned at our university? And this place seems pretty rural. Like, what university is even around there? But these are quibbles. But yeah, no, I got why he'd moved out there. I believe all of that for this reason. When King's son was almost hit, he had bought a house that was on a two-lane highway like this. And it was because he was a guest professor at the University of Maine. And this is filmed in Maine, correct? Contractually obligated by Mm -hmm. King to help the Maine economy (laughs) was that this had to be filmed in Maine. How about you stop writing scary stories about Maine? That might help the economy. (laughs) Actually, so many people stalk his house. I believe he's boosted (laughs) tourism quite a bit. But... And stop shoving maximum overdrive down our throat. That's yes, what I was that, thinking about. I was totally thinking about that. But it's interesting. This is why I like doing a retrospective of King in this way, is that we can see where the origins of that short story trucks must have come from, really the same place. How frightening it must have been to know that his kid almost was mowed down by a truck. And one impulse, one night he had the idea to write a really stupid story. And then another time he, you know, he wrote Pet Cemetery. So... Because he isn't a good editor of himself, we can see both good and examples of real primal fears. But he was teaching at a university, and I have not researched it. I went to private schools. We had a few nurses. But if you went to a large state school, and University of Maine is rather large, and since he worked at one, especially in the book, he talks so specifically about the medical facility that I feel like he actually went over there and visited it and got a flu shot or two. Yeah, I know. I went to a private university as well. I know they had a clinic. I don't know if you made doctor money at a clinic, though. 
You know, I think he would have written him as an English professor, but because this is so death-centric, and by making him a doctor, you're now dealing with a character whose job it is to sustain life and save people. I think it makes the themes that much richer that he's a doctor. If he were an English professor, which is probably what King is more comfortable writing about, it just wouldn't be as integral to the themes and story. But these guys are horrible parents, aren't they? I mean, they have no sooner moved into the house. You say, you know, the cat's dead meat, but it's in the first, like, three minutes of the movie that that little boy (laughs) is wandering in the street, and if kindly Fred Gwynn was not there to scoop him up, then Gage would be dead a lot sooner and we'd have no plot. And I can't imagine that it was that tempting for any child to want to run towards those trucks. Loud noises like that, that would be unsettling. My question is, I know it's true in the book, are we to take away from this movie that there are evil supernatural forces making people do things that they may not want to do? Was something calling to that little boy to make him go out there? Did the branch on the tree swing snap so that the parents would be distracted at the exact right moment? I never took it that way. I never really took that there is a supernatural element drawing people or pets to the street. Though that might explain how a goldfish may have got hit by a truck. (laughs) That seemed a little weird. Or maybe that died of natural causes. Natural on that one. Yes, ended up in the pet cemetery. But no, I never got... Look, there's going to be ghosts in this film that pop up. I don't know why, but I never get that there's a, a evil force. Yeah, we'll find out about Zelda. I don't think this is like the, the force of Zelda, the dead sister, like drawing people into the street or trying to draw Gage into the street. I never, never felt that. Again, I never read this book. I saw this movie while I was a Zelda zombie playing Legend of Zelda. So yeah, anytime you say Zelda, <laughs> you know, you said the power of Zelda. I'm like, do, 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 But... I never got that there was any overriding evil force either. I just thought we're in a Stephen King movie. There's ghosts. Okay, it kind of shades of The Shining. Oh, a lot of The Shining. There's zombies that come back from the dead. However, it was the intent of King, shot in Maine, 20 minutes from King's house. He was on set a lot. But it was the intention of Lambert and King to say, once Gage is buried... You know, they hear that howling when they bury the cat. That is when supernatural forces are unleashed. And that's when more stuff starts happening and more things are impelled supernaturally in the story. That's why later on there's visions of Zelda and whatnot. As for kids running in the street, yes, trucks are loud, but two-year-olds are dumb. (laughs) So there's enough real-life horror stories of kids getting hit by cars that you're not going to make me think twice that a kid would run out in the street once chasing after his kite. However, this little introduction for Judd is new for the movie. It wasn't like this in the book. Gage only went in the road once in the book, and that was enough. But here, I just felt like when I'm watching it this time, I'm like, wow, they did not learn from this close call at all. <laughs> yeah, no, why don't you put up a white picket fence, something to keep those kids in? Yeah, you would think that the wife would insist that they are staying somewhere in town that night and that she will not spend another night at this house. I mean, she's already so death-centric with her backstory with her sister. But yes, we have to accept all of this as, you know, the setup to the story that they need to tell here. And you mentioned The Shining. There's no way not to see it, right? I mean, it's all over this thing here. And I definitely feel like with the arrival of the kindly old Judd Crandall that we're just seeing Scatman Crothers all over again. (laughs) 
I didn't get shining off of Judd, but it's when Victor shows up. That's when I start getting that shining influence. Yeah, well, that too. I mean, we'll, we'll be mentioning it several times tonight, but I just feel like, even reading the novel, I felt like King was reworking one of his most successful novels to be more tailor-made towards his concerns and his deepest fears. And I just think King feels so connected to The Shining. I mean, you look at Carrie and The Shining, and that's the template for all his future works. I don't think the success of The Shining is what made him do it. I think it's just the story King keeps telling again and again through the 80s. Yeah, no, I feel like, like Stuart said, doing this retrospective, like I'm getting what all King's deals are. And so like, you know, Scary X-Men, you know, Carrie and Firestarter, like that's a thing he likes to do. And then Talking with Ghost, The Shining, like that's a big thing. Like you see these themes get repeated in his stories. Yeah, and that's not a ding on him. I think everyone repeats things. And I think that's what can make someone an interesting artist is what they choose to replay and reinterpret and rework through is sometimes a good thing. That's what I love about doing the book reviews, too, is that I'm really seeing even more of that when I look at stuff that was never made into films. It's really interesting to me to see seeds of ideas that become books later. Like in the book Pet Cemetery, there's actually an offhand line about twins that eat the other twin, you know, absorb the other twin, and then have teeth in weird places. And that was going to become the story of the dark half six years later. Yeah. But speaking just about Judd and maybe how he's like Scatman, I don't even remember the character's name in Shining, but he does what Scatman does with little Danny. He wants to teach him about the powers that are around there. He actually takes them to the pet cemetery to sort of introduce them to the idea that it's natural to be around death and to listen to the voices of the dead. Howdy, neighbors. I'm your kindly old man. Let's go visit the dead and upset your daughter. (laughs) Certainly how Rachel sees it. Did Lewis not, like, inquire about that path on his property when he was buying that house that leads to a cemetery? Did he even go there? Did he just, like, throw a dart at, like, a real estate book and was like, yep, that's where we're living. Oh, those pictures look great on the listing. Let's take it. (laughs) I think we can all agree. Lewis just sucks. And Dale Midkiff just sucks in this world. Oh, he's so bad. I mean, literally, there's times where he's delivering lines. It was bringing up Keanu Reeves to me, just that flat, passionless, like, I'm like, I'm supposed to be invested in this guy and care about him as a father losing his child? No, it's a fail for me. Absolutely agree. I did think while I was watching this movie, Denise Crosby, awful. Mm. Dale Midkiff, (laughs) worse. Mm, I actually have kind things to say about Miko Hughes, who we reviewed in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Best actor in this movie, actually. Yeah. Who's that? Gage. Okay, the little baby. Yeah. Yeah. The two-year-old. Okay. (laughs) I think Fred Gwynn does very good, except for one scene. I wouldn't say it's particularly nuanced acting. It's a lot of acting. It's big (laughs) and it's kind of over the top, but, you know, I like it okay. Yeah. He's good for this. But... Honestly, I'm watching this and I'm like, God damn, I really wish Dale Midkiff would give me something. And then I think Creepshow 3 and I go, he's great. (laughs) (laughs) It really reset my bar for bad acting. I'm like, he's subpar, but I can't say he's bad after seeing Creepshow 3. I mean, come on, the delinquent doctor in Creepshow 3, I think, was more entertaining than this guy, though. (laughs) 
because it's his story, it's for him to carry this movie. And that's why it's so painful is that he is the worst actor here. Everything is centered around his fears. I mean, the first death, we should be said before even church, the cat dies, is this patient that kind of gets thrust upon him. That should be pivotal. We should really understand in the moment how he's feeling. And I just feel like this guy literally does not know how to wear expressions. Like he just either was told and directed to be this way, or he just is incapable of expressing fear and pain. I looked him up to see if he was better later and if this was Mary Lambert's problem, like she wasn't giving good direction. Because mm. when everybody's universally bad, I kind of have to look at the director yeah. and point a finger. But in this case, he didn't go on to do anything either. So I think <laughs> there wasn't a lot of clay there to mold. You know who looks good in this movie? Madonna. Because like I'm like, she's a terrible actress. <laughs> but if this was the one directing her through all those music videos, well, okay, she didn't have a chance. If I had known when I went into this that the director of Like a Virgin directed this, I would have expected like cat heads on people walking around like the lion's head in Like a Virgin. That's what I really <laughs> would have envisioned. Just wait for it. <laughs> next week did she direct ellie to be like the most annoying kid ever the older <laughs> sister here i think that's just six-year-old girls i mean is that is this a line from the book i don't want church to get his nuts cut daddy i mean like this kid talks man i wow she's got a mouth on her she learned that from the hand washer woman that they have inserted that wasn't from the book this missy dandridge missy the maid who I don't understand at all. She is in the book. Oh. She is such a minor character, mm. but she's the neighbor who comes in and does some cleaning and some babysitting a couple of times a week, and who, strangely, Lewis has a wife-swapping fantasy Ooh. about. <laughs> she must be described very different in the book, then. <laughs> I forgot this detail, but and I read the book not that long ago, but it's a big book, and I did kind of read through it fast. This character is an amalgam in the book, Judd is married, yeah. and his wife dies, and that's the human who dies that Ellie has to learn about death. Because if you listen to King, if you listen to Mary Lambert, what this movie really is all about isn't just that King had to tackle his own son, but that when King's cat died, he had to break it to his daughter. And his daughter said, let God get his own cat. This cat is mine. Was very upset. Was her first interaction with death. A child's first dealing with the finality of death. So that is this movie's theme, is about communicating death to those who don't know it and dealing with death. And so, yes, Pascal dies, and... That is a first introduction, but for little Ellie, the first introduction to death in this movie is, and I honestly just read this as, it's a horror movie, we need somebody to die, so let's have the housekeeper write a note, I have cancer, I can't take the pain, <laughs> and just step off a chair. Yeah. It was cancer, okay, I couldn't read her handwriting, I knew she was complaining about stomach pains, I wondered, like, did she get knocked up, and she's so puritanical, she's, like, embarrassed about it that she's not wed, and that's why she's killing herself? I didn't even get why she hung herself in this film. Yeah, she only has, what, maybe two minutes of screen time, we barely may notice her, the fact that we have Lewis as a doctor offering to examine her and reject and her rejecting that really makes you well what was that all about but yeah it didn't seem like she tried very hard to treat her cancer she just kind of quit and gave up and killed herself the other thing according to the director I don't see this but I'll bring her perspective is this is driving home the theme sometimes death is better 
<laughs> because she has cancer and right to die movement to things. Cancer can be put into remission. Like, it doesn't have to be a death sentence if you treat it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and debate euthanasia, but definitely, if you don't go see your doctor yeah. first, I don't, I don't think, you know, the rope is your first line of defense. <laughs> get out of the noose and maybe go get a checkup. And maybe see someone for that depression while you're at it if you're that close to the news. <laughs> but yes, in the book, it was Judd's wife and the housekeeper neighbor down the street is just a friend. But not to judge, but come on. Denise Crosby's a homemaker with only two kids. Do they really need in-home help with this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, no, they don't. They don't need Missy. I really feel like that was a character that didn't need to be expanded upon. I like that Judge had a wife because not only did it set up a theme about what, yeah, death is better, but it, it emphasized the fact that here was a character that knew he could change that fate, but made the choice not to. And that's going to be really, really central here. It begs the question, though, why did Judd tell Lewis about not only the pet cemetery, but the Micmac burial grounds? He gives reasons in the film, if that's what you're asking, because he knew, like, here's the weird, crazy thing. The whole family, except for Lewis, goes off to Thanksgiving dinner because Lewis doesn't get along with the in-laws. So he's like, just hangs by himself, which is really weird. But Judd knows Ellie's not ready for death. Like, she's not going to be able to handle church dying. So that's why he tells them there's another way to bring him back. It's not a good reason. My belief is this. Judd thinks he's doing the right thing by bringing the cat back. He has no way to know the things that are going to come. He does, though. He buried his dog there. He knows what returns. No, no, I don't mean that he doesn't know the cat's coming back. I'm saying he doesn't know Gage is going to die and that Lewis is going to go nuts and bury a human. He thinks he's just sparing Ellie from the pain of the cat. That's my reading. Now... The director's reading is there is a good angel and a bad angel in this film. No. The good angel is Pascal, who's giving nighttime tours of the pet cemetery. Both of them take Lewis to the pet cemetery. And Pascal's the one saying, don't go any further, whatever you do, bad things. They both say the soil of a man's heart is stonier. We could get into that. I think that's a really weird statement by King. Yeah, I don't understand that monologue that Judd's going to give after he's dead. What it means is we lie to our wives and we don't feel as deeply. Yeah, but then he starts talking about what you buy, you own. I, I'm like, is this a movie about materialism all of a sudden? Like, No, no, that's a pretty deep thing. Like, it's your cat now. Because the heart is stonier, we tend to what is there. Once you take something up and bury it, it is yours. Whatever happens, it's your responsibility. I think it's a lot of spirituality there. But according to the director, Judd is the bad angel. He's the one who's tempting and whispering things and giving Lewis bad ideas. If Judd hadn't done any of the things he does, everything he does leads Lewis to the next bad step. And I don't really like that because I think that Fred Gwynn is naturally a warm performer and most people are going to read him as grandfatherly and someone to trust and that he does put them on the path towards burying dead Gage and I suppose dead Rachel, but he does it out of a desire to, I think, teach a lesson about death to this young woman or this young girl, I should say, who is not ready to fully understand that death isn't the worst thing imaginable. 
And I'd like to just say again, that's my reading. Yeah, uh, well, I agree I, with it. I just was saying what the director said because I think the director's full of shit and not very good. <laughs> yeah, the, she's seeing things that aren't there, much like Lewis May with Pascal. <laughs> I don't understand why Pascal is in this film. Like, he's going to show up. All of a sudden, this is like a weird, shining ghost movie. I think this movie would be stronger if it was just like, oh, there's this ancient burial ground and let's go bury something there and see what happens. But we're told what's going to happen. We're told that's forbidden. We're told all this by Pascal. And then we're going to see Judd do the exact same thing a few minutes later. Like, I don't know why there's dueling ghosts in this film. Yeah, and we had this in The Shining. I mean, it worked much better when Danny knew Tony and Tony warned him about things that were coming. And I feel like Pascal is the Tony character. But Pascal is a problematic character, just period. I remember one of the few things I remember about my theatrical viewing back in 1989 is whenever that character appeared, people in the audience were laughing at him. He seems silly. The actor playing him plays it almost comedically. Yeah, oh, yeah. It becomes a comedy towards the end. And I feel like that's the wrong impulse. We want to be scared. And to have this character sort of be like the funny guy that... You know, no, it just doesn't work that way. There are things to fear in the Micmac graveyard. And we don't need a jokester to tell us don't go. Now, I'm going to take the opposite stance. I like Pascal quite a bit. I, first of all, think the actor is one of the better ones there. He brings levity on purpose. He goes against type. I love the appliances they put on him. He looks horribly gory. When I walked out of here, there were three things that scared me. In order, he was the third. And that just open head wound and the way he was all bloody. But yeah, he does play it funny. He's a friendly ghost, not to invoke Casper. <laughs> and... So I actually like him. I do think that King sometimes gets tangled with too many supernatural elements. I think it's stronger when you have one point where, you know, we often say we give the movie one mulligan and one idea and go with it. So if you're going to say there's a Micmac burial ground, great. You're going to start saying there's ghosts before anything was buried and all that. You're in a universe without rules. Anything can happen. And to that point, I think that because... We don't even have any association with Pascal. He's not related to the family. I think that he was a college student, but the way the movie sets it up, I mean, he's just someone with a head wound that's thrown on an operating table. Who's he to us? Why? Who's he to Lewis? They bring him in. He was hit by a truck. And all, the only line you get is he tells Lewis, because you tried to save me, I'm going to help you. Like, I, I didn't see Lewis doing a whole lot to try to save no, him. No, I agree. It, there's no connection there. And you either build that character up so he has more importance when he was alive, or you don't include this character. As is, it sort of distracts from what I want the movie to do, which is to scare me. And really, this movie has a big Nightmare on Elm Street thing going. I found it interesting that all of this stuff's in the book. And the book was written a year before Nightmare on Elm Street came out. But there's this whole dream sequence. Lewis is going to go with Pascal out to the graveyard, and he thinks it's a dream. And then he wakes up, and his feet are all muddy, and he has a scrape that he had got and he, when he thought it was a dream. And so there's that going on. I think this movie could have been fine if you just went the dream route. I mean, what does Pascal do? He's a harbinger of doom, so there's that. He provides some gore in a horror movie, so there's that. But what he really does is provides horribly. I mean, he's not a great guy. He brings Rachel to her death at the end of the film, 
And that could have just been done through dreams. You could have said Ellie had dreams her father did something bad. She has dreams the cat dies, and we don't think Pascal's involved in that at all. So Ellie could have just had premonitions through dreams, which I would have accepted more than a friendly ghost popping up. And he is a bigger part of the movie than he is in the book. Question, would you accept that she has The Shining? Like, could they make it, like, directly connected? Maybe they don't have the rights to The Shining. I don't know. This is a Paramount movie, and the other was a Warner Brothers. But could we just say, yeah, this girl seems to be clairvoyant? The book does that. I would have been fine with it. You, you know what? With the book, I think Pascal may be fine writing a story that's a reflection on accepting death. You, you, you could do a lot of pondering and bring in other elements like that in a book, especially King, because he doesn't mind going six, seven, eight hundred pages. No problems there. With this film, it's called Pet Cemetery. Here's the mulligan, is that it's actually an Indian burial ground cemetery that's causing the horror. Fine, it's not the Pet Cemetery. I'll give it that. The fact that you're going to try to bring in Ghost, we're going to have Pascal, then we're going to have Zelda later on. It's too much. Keep it simple, stupid. Have this be about a evil burial ground that brings things back to life evil. How about a Wendigo? What's a Wendigo? A Wendigo what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is what I was referring to earlier. Did I miss something in the film? <laughs> don't you read Marvel Comics, Jacob? Yeah, I know the member of Alpha Flight. I don't know what you're talking about with Pet Cemetery, though. Oh, in the book, the Micmac Indians were cannibals. And they blamed a Wendigo would touch them because, you know, Wendigo creates cannibalism. It's that whole... It's a folklore thing. Yeah. Mm, okay. And so apparently the Micmacs would starve and eat each other and blame the Wendigo. But then maybe there was a Wendigo? Maybe there's something that's howling that has yellow eyes? I, I don't need another creature in this film. Look, again... Just a burial ground that's evil. Like, you don't mess with the Indian's burial ground. Like, that's a movie trope that I understand. I don't need mystical creatures explaining it. The real funny thing is I wonder if he stole this from Kubrick. As much as he hates Kubrick's The Shining, Kubrick's The Shining came out in 80. This book came out in 83. Yes, he did start writing it in 78, but The Overlook was the first Stephen King thing released about Indian burial grounds. So I often wonder. Yeah, that's true. And that was something that Kubrick did add to The King Shining was that whole idea that it could have been, yeah, Indian lore there. I don't know. But then again, Stephen King probably would work through every cliche and and horror icon eventually you know so he would have gotten to an indian burial ground at some point that it's so closely connected to when the shining came out who knows yeah but, let's not forget old chief woodenhead yeah exactly i mean but i could have accepted some invisible force that guides and guards the micmac burial ground if you're not going to actually have Indians as characters to sort of explain the backstory, I could accept this. They cut it out from the movie, and I think it would help to know that there was a supernatural invisible force kind of following them. Yeah, we get one scene that after the cat has been hit and Fred Gwynn is leading him over the thicket towards the burial grounds, we hear a howling that they just say, well, that's a loon, but you can tell that Clearly, Judd is scared about the forces around them. I think that's the only implication that there's something in the woods watching them at this time. The first and only yeah, indication. that That's never going to come back. I think most of the things they excised from this book for streamlining for a movie, the combinations of the characters, getting rid of Judd's wife, removing the cannibalistic Indians... 
I think that's all good. Actually, the Micmac were really pissed when this movie came out. Apparently, they'd never read the book before, but after the movie came out, they then went and read the book and are like, all right, King, you're... No Micmac ever? There wasn't a single one that had read it before? Apparently, it wasn't a big deal to them until this movie came out. In the sequel, you will not hear any mention of the Micmac because they were not happy. Okay. Well, yeah, politically correct or not, it is the supernatural what's it that's going to be the focus of this movie. And I think you go with it. I think you include it a little bit more. But if you don't, if you just accept that it's an evil burial ground and it lies just beyond the pet cemetery, uh, I guess it works. I do feel like... When Church comes back, this is some of the better moments in the movie. Some of the better acting does come from the cat. The cat yeah, I believe he's evil. 17 different cats used wow. or something like that in this. Cats apparently don't act. You find one cat who does one thing. And... They should have had 17 different Lewises. Yes, that would have helped. <laughs> or just one different Lewis. He looks so much like Gary Sinise, and I wonder, Gary wasn't really famous back then. Couldn't they have just gotten Gary Sinise? <laughs> he ended up doing the stand. I do not know why they got Dale Midkiff. I can't think of a reason why he wouldn't be fired. Go stay in Maine for two months? Okay, the only person who says yes is Dale Midkiff. <laughs> okay. After Church comes back, we're going to get this aside from Rachel that we're going to find out that she is still scared of death. And we're going to get this big, long story about her sister, Zelda. And look, this is creepy stuff. I don't buy any of it, but it's creepy stuff. And I feel like you need some scary moments in a horror film, like, throughout to keep the momentum going. Like, this may be the scariest stuff in this film, watching Zelda's, like, head. I don't know if she's breaking her neck as she's dying of spinal meningitis, but this stuff is, is eerie. I said that I walked away with three big fears, and this was my number one fear walking out of there, was Zelda and spinal meningitis. This thing gave me nightmares after this, the prosthetics, the creepiness. I thought it was an adult. Apparently, listening to the commentary, this is supposed to be a 14-year-old. Oh, she looked 30. Yeah, I thought it was like a 30-year-old older sister or something. It's also a dude. <laughs> <laughs> it is played by a dude, but I did more research than I've done for any now playing podcast in recent memory on spinal meningitis. I went to WebMD. I went to Mayo. Oh, you don't want to go down that route. I talked to a doctor <laughs> because I'm nothing I've read. And according to the physician, and maybe there's a listener out there who is also a physician who knows something the one I spoke to doesn't. But this is not spinal meningitis. No. <laughs> Nothing with spinal meningitis gives you these symptoms. No, I know. They should have talked to Max von Sydow because this is like the exorcist. Like they needed to like, <laughs> you know, throw holy water on her and watch the bed levitate. I mean, it's a real exaggeration of whatever this illness is. And I just want to say that when I read the book as a young person i think i must have been about 13 when i read it this was the stuff that i just didn't understand why it was included i'm like well it's about a pet cemetery so why are we focusing <laughs> on something from the past but it is you know as an adult and you reflect on things that might have frightened you as a child this would have been a very scary situation i just think that maybe mary lambert embellished it in a way that makes it kind of look absurd well, and I also think we're hearing it from an unreliable narrator. Rachel's telling this from when she was a kid. I think it's filtered through how she saw it as a frightened child. But King does describe 
an elongated face and hands that turn like bird's feet and all these various things in the book, none of which are spinal meningitis. Spinal meningitis is not a chronic illness. It can kill you in two days. But even in third world countries today, the thing that happens is either you die or you don't, but you could get gangrene, you could lose a limb, you could lose your hearing. It can cause insanity. It can cause long-term chronic effects. What it can't cause is for you to turn into this hunched-over creature of nightmares. Yeah, you won't become Reagan from The Exorcist, as Stuart said. Like, this really did feel like that moment. And I get, like, this is going to be the story that I think is going to convince Lewis that he has to bring Gage back. Like, this is why, because he knows his wife still has issues with death and still can't accept it, I'm guessing. It feels out of place, though. Like, it just brought up out of nowhere. And I get that this movie is all about death and and how do we react to death. I just wish it felt more natural. I just, it does feel like it was just thrown in here because we need a scary moment. You know what it is, is the book, because it is such a rumination on, on different ways that death can haunt us, it gave the wife character somewhere to go. And it gave her a voice to talk about what she was afraid of. And it's a long book. It works. But here, they're really boiling down this book. It's amazing that so much of it remains in Intact, and yet 500 pages can become an hour and 40 minutes. Because they're rushing through all the plot points, you really recognize that a lot of these things don't come together to tell a plot, per se. That while it might work for her character, I never got that Zelda was a reason why Lewis would want to preserve Gage. I noticed something when I watched this movie this time. There's a weirdly framed shot later on of Denise Crosby at her parents' house, and there's this weird painting behind her, and I'm like, what the fuck is that? Is that supposed to be Zelda? And it's not supposed to be Zelda, per the director's commentary. It's just supposed to be a creepy painting. What? Yeah, I know. It's gonna be replicated later on, though. We'll see Gage dressed like that, Church will be there just like that painting. Yeah, well, what the director was trying to say is that because the cat was brought back, the spirit of Zelda was brought back and is inhabiting Gage, and so it is Zelda and Gage and everything who kills Rachel at the end. Uh, see, it becomes very muddy. Like, I get the sense that Zelda's back, and it's almost this Zelda versus Victor fight going on as Rachel's trying to get back to Maine, but we never see Ghost Zelda return. We'll, we'll just get hints that she's got some place in this, but again, it's not cohesive. Like, there's ghosts, but I don't understand if they're fighting, why Zelda's here. Like, nothing is given a chance to breathe and play out. Here's the biggest difference I see between this and The Shining. The Shining was set at a hotel where you have lots of people over time that would have died there, and their stories naturally would have been absorbed by a haunted, evil hotel. But here, it's hard to know why all of these different fears are congregating around a Micmac burial ground. Yeah, why is Zelda's death, yeah, why is her ghost brought back by the Micmacs, who are in a different state? Again, if it had all happened at the same hotel, that would be the umbrella I could see that that sort of ties it all together. But here, it's a messier plot once you boil down the elements to a, you know, a hundred minute movie. But really, this all culminates an hour into it. And I didn't realize how this movie was paced, and yet it's still paced better than the book, where we get 30 minutes of them settling in, and then 30 minutes in, the cat dies, 
And then we have them dealing with the cat and all of that. And the family strife because Lewis doesn't get along with his in-laws because, God forbid, I I know my biggest fear would be if my daughter married a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Every parent hates that for their child. Yeah, it's so weird because she comes from money. Like, her parents are obviously well off. Adopt a doctor. That's what you want your daughter to marry. But it's an hour in when Gage is playing months must have passed right because i find it hard to believe there was no snow on thanksgiving in maine i have been (laughs) in maine for christmases visiting my family the snow is abhorrent that's true there is no snow in this movie and it's not a flake and then they're having a picnic after thanksgiving this must be a long time after thanksgiving Yeah, they did do some condensing, and I do think that this is where Judd's wife had died. And again, you got the seasons changing and the passage of time in the book. You could go with that, but because they're trying to condense everything down to what feels like a couple months, yeah, you're right. That makes absolutely no sense why there's a sunny picnic after Thanksgiving. But I always remembered this scene. This was one of the few things I did remember from that theatrical viewing. I remember thinking it was an incredible, emotional moment now, is this cheap? <laughs> Were you getting sad as the trucker is rocking out to Sheena is a punk rocker? I kind of like that. I mean, I do think that both that connects with the book by having the Ramones and there's something, you know, just awful about it. But it's also kind of, just kind of exploitive, right? Yeah, no, totally exploitive. Like we see see a kid going, eee, kite! And then like cut to big wheels going, Rrr. it's almost over the top. I actually like it, and I'm going to give Dale Midkiff a rare compliment. His scream of no is really (laughs) emotional. I mean, I'm not saying I, like, welled up for the man, but it's a really good scream. You know how certain actresses get cast in horror movies just because they can shriek really well? I wonder if he got this job based upon his howl of no. He's a scream king? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Yeah, I am. But... I remember being very shocked, and it was really, I remember Fangoria magazines, which I read religiously at the time, discussing about the riskiness. The reason this was in development for four years is no studio wanted to back a movie where a two-year-old is hit by a truck and killed graphically and then comes back and dies. They would have all done it if they upped the kid to seven, but a two-year-old is what was the hard sell. And I remember being shocked by it. Even I walked in not knowing anything other than I was seeing something about an evil cat. I'd never read the book. I didn't know what I was in for. I was getting zombie ghosts and spinal meningitis. And now this kid killed. That came out of nowhere for me. And it's not what you would expect. I'll say in both the movie and the book, they do a bad job of bringing empathy for Gage, though. I feel bad that the parents lost a child, but neither one ever made me like Gage to where I'm sad a character is gone, the way a really good horror movie makes me sad when a character is killed. Well, yeah, that, that is a problem with this. Again, I think the most I feel is for Church. When, when Church dies, we don't even... Gage gets a more exploitive death than Church does, and Church is just a cat. But yeah, all the human characters in this, I just don't care about them. To me, it's kind of an easy way to shock people, is to take something adorable, flash it on screen, and then... You know, run it over. I mean, that's 
That's they, it's not doing the hard work. Yeah, that's not building empathy. That's not showing the family dynamic. I wanted to see a family that was more loving and connected than I'm getting from these cold, bad actors. That said, you know, it is a graphic, shocking scene, and this is a horror movie, so to be shocked is a good thing. So I guess it kind of works, but only in a music video montage kind of way. Yeah, which we get because as soon as that kid dies, like, re, I don't know, break into a Guns N' Roses ballad or something, I feel like that would be the perfect soundtrack. Is like Polaroid's fall of different memories that they have of Gage. Like, I, it's so cheesy. I liked the Polaroids. I liked basically the sight into his mind as he's remembering the good times with his son. I know that when I suffered a couple of losses in the past couple of years, that's where my mind immediately went is thinking about the times that would never be had again and things that went well. The music, however, is a really bad choice. Do you think millennials would picture this as Instagram photos now? Yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yeah, the remake, right? And I think they are thinking about it. I also had a memory from this movie truly haunt me. My first time ever going to a funeral was in my adult life. I was in my late 20s, and my wife's grandmother died. And we go to the funeral, and it was my first time seeing a dead body. And I didn't want to go. I was really nervous, you know. I, I went. I faced the body. But then we leave, and I'm a little shaken up. And then there's this crashing sound from in the observation room. And all I'm thinking is Pet Cemetery. Somebody knocked over the casket. The body <laughs> fell out. Oh, for real? It turned out somebody just fell into a whole bunch of chairs. But I'm just standing uh. there like, oh, my God, Pet Cemetery, the body fell. Oh, my God, Pet Cemetery, the body fell. This scene is so awkward, it almost feels like a dream sequence. Like, I kept waiting for Lewis to wake up and be like, oh, because there are these kind of moments. It's very fragmented after this point that we have the wife also, yeah, walking through music video land kind of stuff. And it's hard to know what is real and what's not because we have ghosts popping in and out. What is the actual material reality that we're to understand is really happening? Difficult to know. I agree. I when I first saw this, because you don't really have a beat on the parents. You've had a couple of offhand lines that he doesn't get along with them. But if the parents were more characters other than maybe a flash of them at Thanksgiving and that's it, if this relationship animosity was really driven home more, I'd go with it. This is something that really should have been cut. Yes, it is horrifying to think not only did your son die, but... Now his casket is falling and you see his dead hand. Horrifying. But if you're condensing for a movie, cut this. Yeah, it's so cartoonish. And I feel like you only see caskets get knocked over in comedies. Like, that is always a cheap laugh. So the fact that they do that here to, I guess, show escalation, the animosity between the in-laws and Lewis, I don't know. It, it doesn't work. Yeah, all it does is make us hate Irwin and, and yeah, the in-laws. And so I guess we're to be mad that Rachel goes off with them. But that's because Lewis is sending her away, that he has got it in his head, what would be obvious to us. If you've set up early on that there's a magical place that can bring the dead back to life, knowing this late in the game that their child is dead, we know exactly what's going to be on Lewis's mind. That's Judd knows exactly what's going on in Lewis's mind. Lewis even asked when they were up there, has anyone ever buried a person? And, you know, it takes a while for Judd to co totally come clean, but he's willing to come clean because he can see how badly what he set out and introduced them to is now opening up. And I will put out there, 
in the book, this whole thing is described about the World War II vet who came back and was buried in the Micmac grounds and came back. He never became a cannibal zombie attack beast, though. That is all added just because this is a horror film. When he's sitting there munching on a foot, I thought that was a little bit extreme. And when I finally got around to reading the book, I was right. And that was not in there. Instead, the ghosts who come back from the burial ground talk shit. Like, your wife is sleeping around on you. They just talk shit? That's as evil as they get? <laughs> that's not <laughs> scary. Until Gage, that's it. They shamble around, and if you go to confront them, they talk shit. Like, they're demons that know things. Like, your wife is whoring out, and your children are only hanging around you because they want your inheritance. That's the kind of thing that the World War II zombie does. Okay, that's dumb. I, I actually don't mind the cannibalism. I get the sense from church that, yeah, you do come back as a zombie. They're always talking about church's bad smell. So the fact that they're eating people or trying to kill people, I don't have a problem with that. That's what I would expect in this movie. And again, if they had included that whole thing more about the Indians, that you would have seen that. I, that may have been helpful. Here, they're doing it in shorthand. They're doing it as a music video montage. And so, yeah, all we need to understand is when you come back, you are really not yourself. You are a ravenous killer. And therefore, that should really give Lewis pause. He's already had the opportunity to see how wrong it's gone with church. Although I guess all church is killed is some rats. But that should be enough to know that this is a very bad idea. But I guess it's a devil on his shoulder. He's been tempted. It's too tempting to know that you can alleviate your grief, if only for this bad zombie imposter of your son. And this is where, according to the director, the influence of the cemetery is starting to take over because the cat is back. The cat is sitting there, you know, the cat is now a demon, and so it's giving kind of bad vibes, and I think that's even driven home a bit more in the book. Again, the director says, and Judd really enticed him. He hadn't really thought about it until Judd came over and said, don't do it. But no, I think he'd be thinking about it instantly. I mean, who wouldn't be thinking about it if you had a way to bring people back from the dead? You gotta consider that as an option. And yeah, the cat's a little messed up, but this is a horrible choice. But if your son's hit by a truck, would you rather have one that's mentally impaired and not quite himself anymore or dead? That's the thing. We talked about sometimes dead is better. If this was a real reflection on death, and, you know, my grandfather, he suffered from Alzheimer's, and for probably a decade, we had to watch him, like, slowly lose his memory, forget his grandchildren, then his children, and then his wife, and, like, we were relieved when he finally passed, because this was a man who remembered nothing, but Pet Cemetery, they don't want to do this kind of reflection on death, and sometimes dead is better. Like, they haven't done it up to this point. Why start now? Like, get to the baby killing people. Like, it, it is a cheap exploitation <laughs> film because it's failed to set it up as something being really meditative on death. You know, in the book, they really call something out that, that I was noticing as I was reading. I'm like, this is a whole lot like Monkey's Paw. And then at some point, some character actually brings up that short story. I'll paraphrase it here. Basically, it's about a couple that... That realizes they can have their wishes granted th three of them by rubbing a monkey's paw this talisman and it brings about the death of their son with their second wish they try to bring him back from the grave and that story stops short we never know exactly what the mangled son would do 
King is going to take that position and go all the way with it. He's like, I'm going to show you what Monkey's Paw wouldn't do by opening the door and letting you see the son return home. It even goes so far in the Monkey's Paw. The third wish is I wish for my son to be dead again because you don't see him. He's outside the door, but it's a horrifying thought here. There are three wishes as well. I wish my cat wasn't dead. I wish my son wasn't dead. I wish my wife wasn't dead. So it's following the structure of Monkey's Paw. Yeah, exactly. Except he still keeps making the same dumb choice. You would really <laughs> think after the son comes back and the way that he comes back. Yeah, I, we'll talk about the end when we get there. I don't understand that decision. But look, I like this stuff, like with this baby running around murdering people. Like, yeah. this is fun stuff. And Arnie, I don't, I don't know if they had extras on the Blu-ray or DVD you watched. Oh, yeah. Three featurettes in modern day and a director's narration of what's happening on screen. Did they have like an actor with like baby hands on or something? Like there's times where there's close up of those hands when it's like grabbing that doctor's scalpel. Like they don't quite look like real two year old hands. They look like, I don't know, a puppet. I'm not sure. That really was Miko's two year old hands grabbing the scalpel. They did not use a dwarf because it didn't look right. They did use a puppet, and I, there's times when it looks like Chucky. Yes. When it's standing in the attic and throwing, like, the dead wife down, I'm like, child's play? But by and large, it was a combination of puppet with Miko and nothing else. And I think this is the stuff that really gets to people. I think this is what we've been waiting for. I think you're right. It is, in many ways, the most horrific parts, because... Here's someone that's so innocent. I mean, this child that has done nothing but be adorable up to this point to now know that it's capable of what it's doing is absolutely horrifying. And yeah, I think this is the part that really moves people that he's, you know, going to first go for Judd. And then Rachel has also been, you know, because of the shining and her, <laughs> yes. and her daughter, she Pascal. Is, yeah. And because Pascal's kept the door open to the airplane. And you like that stuff, Arnie? It's all those scenes of Pascal helping out at the airport and all that? I do. I actually, I can't say they aid the movie, but they're entertaining. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you, Arnie. Like when he's telling the lady at the rent-a-car, you know, what about the Aries K with the big scrape on there? Like, it's funny, but it's from a totally different film. Like, it's it doesn't fit into this, but like as a YouTube clip, I'm enjoying it. I would really hate The Shining if there was someone like this that was... <laughs> You know, Scatman, you know. like Yeah, but this isn't The Shining. We actually saw Toning, like we did in the TV miniseries <laughs> of The Shining, when Tony's just floating above, like, stoplights and saying, hey, don't go to the hotel. Yeah, that is a mood killer. <laughs> the only problem I have is Pascal is a psychic ghost, right? He knows what's coming before anything happens. He's saying... Don't go there, Doc. But he knows this is going to happen. So he should know he's leading Rachel to her death. All Pascal succeeds in doing is killing Lewis's wife. Period. Well, yeah, and that's why you don't need Pascal in this film. Again, you could have the daughter with a bad dream, or you could just have the wife coming home. Maybe she has a bad feeling. Like, you could cut all the stuff about there not being a car to rent or almost missing the plane. Like, she could just catch the plane and there could just be a car to rent. She could get there and still die. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it would be more dramatically satisfying if it were a choice that she made on her own without being manipulated. But this is where they try to bring Zelda back into it, too, which is confusing. Like, Rachel's gonna have that dream in her house and 
you know, Zelda is maybe messing with Gage to be more murderous than Church ever was as a zombie cat. Yeah, we just needed to understand that this graveyard brings back whatever your worst fears are. And then we could understand. Obviously, Zelda was not buried there. And there's no reason to believe that Native Americans would know or care about the problems of a suburbanite of 20 years ago. (laughs) But... It is frightening to think that something from your deep past that you have a lot of guilt about would come back and haunt you in this way. I like the sentiment behind it, but I wish I understood the force of evil. And that's, I guess, going back to the Wendigo. And here, I'll just say it accomplishes this. It doesn't make logical sense. I've, I try to figure out why... Zelda is there, and then Gage is wearing this weird outfit that the painting back in the house in Chicago had, even though that painting wasn't Zelda. It's just a creepy kid in a top hat, and all of this. I can't give you that. But what I can say, and it goes back, she's a music video director, her mood is right. She's throwing a lot of scary or at least disturbing images. Again, Zelda, my number one fear. (laughs) So by throwing Zelda here in the end, she's creating fear in me when I was 13 years old seeing this in theaters. And now I just find it horrific, if not at all logical. Yeah, and that that is what happens there. The logic is thrown out. Like again, I don't have a problem with the two year old killing Judd or his mom. Like that stuff works as a demonic zombie two year old. The fact that he has powers to create like hallucinations. Lewis is going to come into Judd's house and it's going to look all like decrepit and moldy or something. I'm not sure what we're supposed to get, but he's messing. He's playing, as he says, with daddy here and causing him to see things. Oh, and I love that line. I love the laugh that Gage has. Did they get a voice actor or did they get this two-year-old to say all these lines? I do love the voice. Really smart. The kid was two when he was cast. He was two going on three when they filmed. When they did ADR, he was three going on four and could enunciate a lot better. So in a lot of cases, it is Miko Hughes saying these lines. There was an ADR person. The director recorded a couple of laughs as well. But they got him when he was a four-year-old and able to be understood. But that line, now I want to play with you. That's just, I love that line, you know? They could almost make a whole movie about this. They could have gotten to this earlier. Yeah, and ma- yeah, we should say this is like the last 20 minutes of the film. It's not very much of Killer Gage. It's the climax. And I, I think the impulse on that is right because you're not going to get anything scarier than this. And I think they make a mistake by trying at the very end. But yeah, it, I guess because we have been waiting for so long for the, these kind of horrific classic slasher scenarios it's a long time to wait and it's a lot of bad performances we're watching (laughs) in order to get there one thing i'm wondering also uh, if if people are understanding jacob did you understand that the father fell asleep because of a magical force and not just because he is just not capable of drinking coffee and staying awake knowing that his dead son is coming back to him uh no i thought he just fell asleep because that's a long hike and then you got to bury someone in hard soil like that's a lot of work i'd fall asleep too afterwards And the stress. In the movie, I took it as he just fell asleep. In the book, yes, there's more to it. But yeah, I took it as drinking, emotional distress, long hike through the woods, 
chased by a Wendigo. <laughs> I, still, I would, I, again, if you thought your dead son was coming home and that you may have to kill him, because he isn't a complete fool. He does think there's a chance this could backfire, and he thinks he's prepared to just take the kid out and, and wife and daughter will never have to know about it. I just don't think that you can look at the scene and say, oh yeah, he was just, you know, sleepy. No, that doesn't work. That is true. He tells Judd, like, if he comes back bad, he'll just take him out. But what, how horrifying to wake up and realize who you were trying to protect already came home and has been taken care of. I mean, Judd, he was old, but your wife, ouch. Yeah, and, and Judd dropped some lines like, God will take him when he's ready. Like, he has things to pay for. Like, I feel Judd is dead meat from the beginning because of sins from the past. Yeah, and he introduced him to this. In some ways, he, you know, quote unquote, deserves it. And the way he's taken out, oh my God, the cutting of the Achilles tendon. Ooh, yeah. That's the one of the most horrifying realistic things in here is the thought of a freaking scalpel. I don't know why a university doctor has a medical bag with a scalpel in <laughs> yes, it. Yes, I was wondering that too. <laughs> I'm the son of a doctor. I've rooted through many a medical bag. There's a stethoscope. There's a thermometer. There's various pills in case of emergency. There was not an implement of death in there in case... Well, you know, and just in case I have to do an appendectomy while I'm walking through the mall. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but we do see Heath Ledger Joker, like, here. Like, yes! Judd's also going to get slashed on the sides of his mouth. Like, Heath Ledger as the Joker had those scars. Like, oh, it's it's pretty nasty looking. Like, when Lewis finds him later, it's like his jaw's missing. The movie does a good job in this scene of convincing me a two-year-old could overpower Herman Munster. <laughs> yeah, which is not easy to do. It, it could be something very laughable, and I think it's to this movie's credit that they're working with these kinds of flawed actors and flawed direction, and yet I still feel like, yeah, this stretch of the movie is, is very solid. And that he has to put his son down. I mean, of course he does. The son is responsible for the death of his wife, and it would, would kill him as well, and yet you he still looks like Gage. You know, they haven't made him look... Too much like a living dead creature. Yeah, he kind of has a scar and that's it. Yeah, I do wonder if Romero had done this, if he would have been more tempted to go with Tom Savini makeup here. But the impulse is right. You got to make him still look like lovable little Gage. Well, the impulse was to make him look like an undead creature with a whole bunch of appliances. The problem is child labor laws only allowed Miko to be on set for so long, and it took a long time to apply those appliances, and the two-year-old was not being very patient about sitting in the makeup chair. <laughs> so they ended up just going with what they have, the small scar. But in the book and in the original screenplay, he looked like a child who'd been run over by a freaking Mack truck and had to have a closed casket, not like angelic little Gage. I mean, Church comes back and is still wounded too. But I do like when we get almost a precursor, right? To prepare the audience for the death of Gage, he kills Church and he's like, lie down, play dead, be dead. I like the emotion. It's the what? second time I actually think that actor does a okay job. I <laughs> wish you would stop complimenting him. I think everything he does is awful. But, you know, I'm glad that you're able to find some enjoyment in that because it should be a moment where we feel that. You're absolutely right. That should be a powerful moment. It is not. I also just like the words. I think it's, you know. No, it's, it's good lines, but yeah, it's not delivered right. But I do like that... Gage isn't fully zombied out. I think it's creepier that he still looks like this innocent two-year-old, except he has a scalpel and he's killing people. Like, the mom falls out of the attic 
with a noose around her neck. I don't know how a two-year-old pulled that off, but that that's scary stuff. It's weird to me that Lewis, though, like he injects Gage with whatever that serum was that he killed the cat with, and then he burns the house down because we saw that in the flashback. So I guess you have to burn the house. He leaves his son there, but he takes the wife. Like, I would have thought he would have at least wanted the body to bury regular. No, not after he did that to the wife. <laughs> and and keep in mind, I think he realizes that's not really Gage. Uh, what do you think about his goodbye line there? I remember the theater laughed. No fair. No fair, no fair. Yeah. I like it. I, I my, do, yeah. Yeah, I'd li- I do like it. My theater didn't laugh. Uh, I mean, I saw this in a pretty crowded theater nobody laughed and i thought it was sad yeah there is something pathetic about it and you don't get a sense that you've defeated the evil you just defeated this incarnation of the evil and that he'll have to live with watching you know his son fall over and die in front of him again that in of itself is haunting and the fact that i've seen so many horror movies where the supernatural evil is defeated right and they don't like how they're defeated. But how would a two-year-old supernatural evil express that? No fair, you know? So I took it as a sore loser demon, but I also saw it as a sad two-year-old expression. Yeah, it's appropriate. It's age-appropriate for me. And I guess Lewis is just beyond help. That There's there no rational thought. That all of the death and the madness that's befallen his family and his house literally in flames, and yet all he's going to do the lesson he's learned from this is oh i just need to bury them quicker into the (laughs) evil indian burial ground i just want to know how he carried rachel after that big fight over like all that space like that's a long way to carry a full adult the book two things it says first of all if your mind is set on taking whatever it is they talk about somebody who took a bull wow to the (laughs) micmac burial ground (laughs) so the supernatural force that brings them back will guide you and help you lift whatever you need to lift and the book also makes it clear lewis is just nuts now he has snapped he is insane and making irrational choices and will never be sane again possibly because he'll be dead but we don't know for sure in the book here i took it as ultimate grief it's not a rational decision but that hope and man i put myself in his shoes right the cat came back from the dead wasn't quite right would i bury my son up there yeah i probably would the son came back nuts Would that be enough to then tell me my wife? Would I not want to roll those dice again? Well, here's the only thing that I could say to his defense. I don't think he cares about living anymore. If she's not going to come back and give him some kind of affection, I don't think he minds that she picks up a knife and does him in. But the true loose thread of all of this is Ellie. What about their fucking daughter? (laughs) (laughs) I know. She's just like having bad nightmares night after night because she can see all this in her dreams. She gets to stay with those rotten step parents who probably (laughs) wanted her the whole time. So maybe it's a happy ending. I don't know. I just think it's weird because I'm not a parent, but the parents I talk to always talk about doing things for their children and living on for their children and fighting cancer for their children. And even, yes, I do know a family that had to be strong because of the death of one of their children, but they had to be strong for the other children. So the fact that Lewis is so far gone about his wife that 
he decides to give up his own life. And we never find out what happens to Ellie in either the book or this. I want to know what the hell happened to the little girl. You know, I would have liked an epilogue where she was the one telling the tale or something. Did she ever go back? Did she ever find out what happened? What does she know when her undead mother was found in Ludlow? I mean, really? Well, we do have that sequel next yeah, week. Yeah, maybe we'll get that next week. Sadly not. We're going to get Edward Furlong instead. <laughs> but again, I said three things scared me. But the number two thing was this ending with Denise Crosby, who we haven't talked about her acting, but it's been pretty bad, this movie, too. Yeah. But he, here, when she comes back as the zombie, and there's pus running out of her eye, and he kisses her... I, like, made audible sounds and <laughs> writhed in the theater. Well, yeah, that that's what tells me Lewis is crazy at this point, that he's going to make out with zombie wife who's got pus coming out of her. Yeah, I, even if she weren't evil, could you live with it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, really? Always mopping that up. Uh, honey, you want to... You want to use more bass there. Your 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 pus is showing. <laughs> Why do I just think Cronenberg would find a way to use it as lube? Mm. <laughs> but that happens, and then she grabs the knife. In the book, she merely puts a hand on him and says, darling, and we don't know if she's okay or not. I mean, that book ends Monkey's Paw. But here, she grabs the knife. They did three different endings. A whole bunch of this endings had to be cut. There were a lot more gauge stuff. The MPA was like X-rating, X-rating, X-rating. And so it was cut down. 89 was a horrible year, the late 80s and early 90s with the MPAA. They also had three different endings, including a fourth that was King's original script that was going to be a happier ending where Lewis just walked away from all of it. But eventually they went with this book ending they got her makeup to this level of grotesqueness, and the MPAA said, fine. And she grabs the knife, and we know. So it actually is more clear about what's going to happen than the book itself. It just It's a great note to end on. I walked out of this theater a little shaken. I remember walking out in the daylight and getting in my mom's car, too young to drive, and just having an uneasy feeling that this last scene left me with. Yeah, I remember being moved back then, too. But now, well, I'm curious to know what you guys think. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Pet Cemetery, Jacob? What's interesting is just a, a few weeks before having to do this review, we had a couple of pet betta fish, uh, one for each of the girls, and they both died within about a week of each other. Just Fish are hard to keep alive. <laughs> and, and it was interesting seeing... The six-year-old and the ten-year-old's response to death. One, you know, it was kind of like, oh, that's sad. It moved on. And the other one, like, she has a whole memorial, like, in her room with pictures she's drawing and poems and everything. Like, more, like she would definitely take that goldfish to the burial ground and bring it back and have an evil goldfish. So, I, I think this is... <laughs> I think this is interesting material, like accepting death and, and how do you deal with death of a loved one. Like, I, I think this is a great thing where you could do it as a good horror movie. Unfortunately, this isn't a good horror movie. Like, there's some good horror parts in it. Like, Zelda, the, like when she's dying, like, it's good stuff. I don't know what it really has to do with the rest of this movie. Yeah, th there's a line that really kind of sums up how I feel. Today is Thanksgiving Day for cats, but only if they came back from the dead. Huh? Like, I don't even know what that means. That's how I kind of feel about this film. Like, I understand the parts of it. I don't understand how it goes together. Yeah, it's got a good 
horror film the last 20 minutes with Gage coming back but the acting is so bad there's so many parts that just they don't gel and make sense you're kind of bored until Gage finally goes on the rampage at the end so for me it's a weaker not recommend but it's not recommend because it just doesn't gel as a film Stuart. Yeah, there's a line that sticks out for me as well. Rachel is talking about Zelda's death happening, and she runs out of the house and was screaming, Zelda's dead, Zelda's dead, and the neighbors thought I was crying, but maybe I was laughing. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. I thought that this movie was scary, and maybe when you watch it at an impressionable age, it is. But the problem is, as good as the source material is, I do think King's fears are in full display and that it really is a powerful story, whatever its pacing problems may be. All of, all of Stephen King's novels could use some editing, but I think it's a good book. And I think what's good about this movie is the faithfulness it has to that book. But there's a lot about this adaptation that is just very subpar, particularly the acting, some of the music video effects, the weird, like, there's like just some weird Fred Gwynn effect at some point. He like comes up like a water tentacle and goes, no, I mean, it's a lot of just unnecessary. We don't have a director that's in full control of what she's doing. And I think that if you had had a really strong director, they could have pulled this movie together. But as is, it's a real mess. And, you know, sometimes... The book is better. <laughs> I just wait to see who's going to say sometimes dead is better first when we get to the sequel. But <laughs> for this one, you know, I always bring in what Stephen King thinks of the movie if I can. And he, of course, likes this. He wrote it. He was on the set. <laughs> yeah, he's got a cameo in it. Yeah, he was consulted contractually and he approved every change to his script that Mary Lambert wanted to do. He likes it. Do I? I came in with great memories, especially again after... The Creepso Trilogy. I was looking forward to Pet Cemetery as getting back to some really good King. I remembered this being one of the best, but I hadn't seen it in 15 years or so. I got the DVD signed by the entire cast a couple years back, but I hadn't popped the disc in. But I'll admit, the acting here was so much worse than I'd expected. Just going through, I was like, wow. Wow, man, I, we need to bury all of them in the cemetery so they come back alive instead of these dead line readings. And I was surprised by some of the weird things, like the death of the housekeeper due to the cancer, and the strange effects Stuart mentioned, and Pascal not really fitting in exactly right to the story and wondering what does he really add. But man, the slasher portion of this film is great. Killer Gage is great. Is that enough to outweigh the first hour? I'm going to say yeah. I'm going to say that there's enough of a mood to this piece. There's enough of just individual parts do not make sense, but the whole is greater than the sum of its parts in this case. I'm going to give it a weak recommend. and I think it, it definitely deserves a watch, even though it's not the great film I thought we were going to come back to. I would say if they could ever remake this properly, there'd never be a reason to watch this. People hold on to this one because they probably saw it at the right age and because it's the most faithful thing we have to one of the iconic Stephen King books. But all we're needing really is a really great reboot and nobody would want to look at this thing again. There's so many flaws. Agreed. And I'm not opposed to getting a remake of this. I think there's good material here. It's in production. 
will be coming back to the cemetery after next week at some point. Huh. It was greenlit in 2011, then the director dropped out, greenlit again, and a director assigned in 2014, and then it just kind of stalled. But there's a studio, I believe it's Paramount, that wants this back, that wants to make some money on it and wants to capitalize on it. I wonder if for the 30th anniversary of this movie, we'll see it come back, kind of like Carrie. Yeah, I'm, well, you know what? I'm excited to see some Stephen King on the big screen, given how some of this direct-to-video stuff has turned out. You know, this one isn't one of the worst. I just want to emphasize, even though I'm giving it a red arrow, I do think it's the kind of red arrow I gave Firestarter and Cujo, where it's a professional movie. It just was lacking a, a spirit and a spark. And I feel like a solid production team could give what this movie didn't in a remake or reboot that this will work. I'm convinced of it. And, uh, and my condemnation is not a condemnation of the source material. And I think it needs a different screenplay writer than Stephen King. We need someone removed, someone that could really mine the gems for a hundred minute film out of those six, 700 pages. King kills a lot of his characters, but he does not understand the term kill your darlings. <laughs> and no. That is the problem, I think, with this film. So, yes, I agree. I think King should be involved in the adaptations of his own stories because he knows the spirit of them. He maybe should be consulted, but he should not have the final say the way he did here and the way he did in Maximum Overdrive. I'll say this is probably the most involved he'd been in one of his productions since Maximum Overdrive, not the least of which was because he was starting his path to sobriety around this time after his major <laughs> final bender. I will say it's his best cameo so far. He, that priest bit, I, I buy, more or less. <laughs> he does look like a preacher. Apparently, he sat around the set the entire time drinking Joel Cola and reading the obituaries <laughs> aloud to the cast. <laughs> Whatever. Joel, that, that's almost worse than cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes coke is better. <laughs> but yes, we will be back with the Stephen King not approved sequel <laughs> next week. Surprisingly, the director came back. Well, I mean, good. The person I didn't want. Ooh, so she has two real films on her resume. <laughs> I have no idea what this is. I've never seen it and never thought there was any reason to see it. But I just hear people cackle every time it's brought up. So I don't know what we're getting. It doesn't have anything in it as good as the Ramon song is what I remember. But we'll find out next week. I haven't seen it since the one time I saw it. My memory is there's some weird shit in it, but... I also remember it being somewhat incoherent. We'll see if my memory is right. In the meantime, if you want more horror and people coming back from the dead, this Friday we're reviewing April Fool's Day, our fourth movie in the Horror of 86 series. We've done Hitcher, we've done House, we've done Chopping Mall, and now we get to the holiday-based April Fool's Day. Just when you thought there were no more holidays that could be a horror film. <laughs> we still haven't done Hanukkah. <laughs> There's so many. But yes, April Fool's Day is one I definitely remember. I remember renting it. I remember just being kind of, well, we'll discuss it. And I hope you can join. But yeah, it's a slasher like others you've seen before, but with the spirit that I don't feel like many slashers have. It's a gold-level donation. It gets you all five reviews of the Fly films and then all eight reviews of the horror films of 1986. After April Fool's Day, we've got Vamp, Deadly Friend, Trick or Treat, not to be confused with Trick or Treat, and From Beyond. And remember, every dollar donated goes to making this show the best show it can be. 
and makes us work so hard doing so many bonus shows that we are we hope our listeners enjoy so thank you to everyone who's donated we hope you're really enjoying the series if you are tweet about it go to facebook tell others about it so the listeners know hey these shows are really something worth hearing we're putting a lot of work into them i'm enjoying the recordings quite a bit i'm seeing films i've never seen before for this series never seen april fool's day never seen vamp never seen deadly friend so it's a path of discovery for me i hope you can join us for it and then come back next tuesday for pet cemetery 2 and jacob stewart thank you for joining me you bet and until next week Fuck off, hairball. Lewis? Yeah? Not one word about what we done tonight. What did we do tonight, Judd? What we did, Lewis, was a secret thing. Women are supposed to be the ones who are good at keeping secrets. But any woman who knows I'm dog will tell you... She's never seen into a man's heart. The soil of a man's heart, Lewis, is stonier. Like the soil up there in the old Micmac Bearing Ground. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. We played, Daddy. We had an awful good time. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original short stories and novels. Yeah? That's a good story. A good walk. I'll take you up there sometime. Tell you the story, too. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear our reviews of other Stephen King movies, such as Carrie, The Shining, Children of the Corn, Cujo, and dozens more in our archive section. It's a place where the dead speak. Also on our site, hear reviews of other films, such as Maniac, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers Films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. Let's go, Doc. I don't like this dream. You said you were dreaming. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. Come on, Doc. Don't make me tell you twice. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. I think you're going to be just as happy as a clam here, Ellen Green. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Well, they have to learn about death somehow, not out there, Ms. Green. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I want to help you because you tried to help me. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I bought you something, Mommy. I bought you something, Mommy. Now Playing's Pet Cemetery series is edited by Arnie. Well, sometimes that is better. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Stay with me! That is better! That is better! 
The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. The barrier was not meant to be crossed. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. God sees the truth, but waits. Now Playing is a Inganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Inganza Media Incorporated. No brain, no pain. The soil of a man's heart is stonier, Lewis. Man grows what he can, and he tends it. Because what you buy is what you own. What you own always comes home to you. But we have gathered hold quite on, a... Hold on, they're barking. Yeah. It's going to be worse than planes. Yeah, truly. <laughs> Wherever Stuart is, there is the noise. Hmm. It's funny, my new compressor, whenever uh, there's an airplane and Stuart isn't one isn't speaking, it really sounds like I'm sitting on the runway at JFK because <laughs> it just amplifies that dead sound. Logan, quiet now. <laughs> We're going to put you in the pet cemetery. <laughs> he may have already been put there. He's, he's mean. <laughs> exactly. Okay. All right. Yeah, from the days when I actually wrote a Stephen King paper, which I think was like ninth grade, I do remember... St- starting it. Uh, give it a second. The dogs. <laughs> Marjorie is on her way home. She's you keep saying home. that. Well, no, she, I mean, she's in a goddamn car. <laughs> Tell her to go faster. I want to see what she's going to do with these dogs. What, duct tape their mouths? <laughs> I, from what I understand, she's bringing a third dog. This could only get worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it'll all be better when the third dog gets here. <laughs> I'll just talk between the barks. <laughs> and she says contention as... Oh, it was really weird. Con... Contention. No, contention. It was. What? Yeah. I, Are I, you I, saying a word? I yeah. don't know what's happening. Contention. What? What's. It's, say the whole sentence. I, you're just throwing out a word. I don't know what you're. It's in context. We're just now. saying syllables now. <laughs> There's such a long pause. I forgot what you were saying. He's actually doing Rosetta Stone, I think, in <laughs> Lithuanian. <laughs> Would you like to go to the market? Contention. <laughs> Fuck it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> a college student who died on the first day of Lewis's job and played by Brad Greenquest. A college student who died on the first day of Lewis's job and played by Brad Greenquest. <laughs> Greenquest. <laughs> you Zelda, the great and terrible. <laughs> you don't have to say his name. No one knows him. <laughs> A college student who died on the... Pancow dies, and we see that, and that introduces a ghost. Pancake died? Yeah, (laughs) Pancow. Daddy, I want my pancake. 
Pankow. That is something else. There's a character named Pankow somewhere. What about a Wendigo? Wendigo, isn't that it? Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. <laughs> what, what about Wendy's? <laughs> <laughs> you want a Frosty? <laughs> I only know that because of the Marvel character, you're right. Wendigo. I just can't read my own handwriting. They're handwritten notes this time. I think Wendigo ate your baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. All right. How about a Wendi- Wendigo? Wendigo. Yeah, okay. Now I don't even know what I'm saying. I actually like it, and I'm going to give... Oh, what's that asshole's name? Is it Dale Midquist? Midquit. Uh, Midquit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's quit. what I want to do if you're going to compliment him. Uh, Midkiff. <laughs> I got the DVD signed by the entire cast a couple years back, but I hadn't popped the disc in. So I... Except for Fred Wynn, of course, because he's dead. and I wasn't taking him to the cemetery so he'd autograph a DVD. And until next week, fuck off, hairball. You said that almost as bad as Midkiff. <laughs> <laughs>